Well, this morning uh, we are going to continue our study in Ecclesiastes. Um, we're going to be in chapter 5, verse 8, through chapter 6, verse 12. And uh, tomorrow, of course, is July the 4th, and that is the day uh, that we celebrate freedom, our freedom as a nation, as we've already mentioned. And, you know, we in America... We value the pursuit of what I'll call a happy life. We live uh, in a place where we believe that you should be able to pursue your dreams. So it's a great place to live, right? So no matter your past or your background or what kind of family you come from or whatever, that doesn't have to, have to determine your future. And so uh, those are foundational things that our country was founded on. And actually, the Declaration of Independence contains these words, We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain Inalienable, unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So in our founding documents here, we've got this pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so we are a people, largely as a nation, that really do believe in pursuing happiness, so much so that our country is founded upon that principle. But we're not the first to pursue this. Man has been pursuing happiness since the beginning. Um, and some people think ha- they find happiness in different things, right? Some pursue happiness through romance. Some pursue happiness through success. Some pursue uh, happiness through um, just a myriad of other things. And one common one uh, that we see in our nation today is through money. Through financial means, through financial gain. People say things like this, if I just had more money, I'd be happy because... Right? And then you fill in the blank, right? People associate money with all sorts of things that can help them, further them alive, and make them happier. Things like success, things like independence, things like security and safety. And the truth is, many pursue happiness through financial gain, through money, through abundance, through accumulating wealth and having stuff. And many times they in the end, find that that was not exactly what it had to offer. I remember when I was a kid, you'd watch uh, cartoons and they, uh, Bugs Bunny or whoever, Looney Tunes, you know, they would be out in the desert somewhere and Bugs or whoever it was would be really thirsty and he would think he sees this big body of water and he would go running to the body of water, but it wasn't a body of water, it was a... Mirage, right? It wasn't what he thought it was. Or you've got the two car- the cartoon of the guys on the island together and they start getting hungry and all of a sudden one of them starts looking like a hamburger, right? But he's not really a hamburger. He's just, he's just, he's just hungry. And how many times do people go running through the desert of life after a pile of money thinking it is happiness? thinking that it is joy, thinking it is all this that they're really looking for, and then they find out really, no, it's just money. Right? And in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, he kind of picks up where we had been in chapter 2 with this kind of vain pursuit, and he focuses on this pursuit of money, the pursuit of wealth, the pursuit of abundance, the pursuit of accumulation as a means to happiness. And he's going to kind of burst that bubble for us because he's going to share with us in this chapter a lot of problems that we have with money. And he's going to point us towards the importance of of beholding the goodness of God and having a relationship with the God of abundance. And so look with me, starting in verse 8. We're going to read all of the rest of chapter 5, starting in verse 8, and then the short chapter there of chapter 6. And so before we read it, let's pray together. Father, thank You for the Word of God this morning that we get to open and read together. And we pray that as we do, that You would open our eyes, open our hearts, open our ears to behold wonderful truths from Your Word. Teach us, Lord, now we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Verse 8. 
chapter 5, Ecclesiastes. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of, in, of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what, is, what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things and he has, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over yet enjoy no good do not all go to the one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? All right. So there's some bad news in these two chapters, but there's also some really good news. So the first thing he does is he points out for us the problems with money. We think a lot of the positive things, there are positive things about money. Money is amoral. It's not immoral. Uh, there's nothing wrong with having uh, lots of money. There's nothing wrong with not having lots of money. It's, an amor it's a thing, right? And some people have lots of it and some people have little of it. But there are, can be lots of problems that come with money because man is sinful. And sometimes we don't have money. Sometimes money has us. But people tend to look at money and think, 
They see happiness. They see joy. All they ever wanted if they could just have more of it. And the truth is, they're just seeing money. And so he wants us to look at money soberly. And so he points out some problems with money. The first problem he points out is in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 5. And we're covering large sections of Scripture, so we're going to have to kind of move quickly and just kind of kind of cover them in large brush strokes. But in verses 8 and 9, he's pointing out that money can fuel and expose corruption. He's talking here about government. All right, he's going to get over in chapter eight. He's going to talk more about the about submitting to the government and some of those things that maybe we're used to seeing in the Bible. And here he's pointing out some of the negatives that can happen in government. It's amazing how people can be so shocked when people in power do bad things. I can't believe that politician did that. I can't believe he or she said that. I can't believe the court ruled that. I can't believe. I can't believe. Believe it is what he's saying. Believe it. He's saying people are sinful and broken and they are greedy. He says, when you look and you see oppression of the poor, violation of justice, when you see unrighteousness, don't be shocked. He says, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher and yet the higher one's over him. What's he saying? He's saying the whole system's rigged sometimes. Now, he's not saying necessarily that every government is vastly corrupt. That's not the point. The point is, is that corruption is common because we live in a broken world system, which is one of the broken world, which is one of the themes of Ecclesiastes. And and people are greedy. And so that's how we know. Look, what's the problem? The problem is greed because who's being oppressed? The poor. So money is an issue. And he goes directly from that into the love of money. And so whenever there's money to be had and money to be gained and money to be manipulated, there are sinful people there to manipulate how it's spent, what goes where, and who does what. Does what. And sometimes there are systemic problems that help create and sustain poverty and things like that. You say, I don't, I don't like it. That's what he's saying. That's in the Bible. So that can happen. Sometimes there are sin issues between me and you or you and I, and sometimes there are systemic issues even within government systems that help and can sustain poverty. You say, well, how can that happen? Well, it does happen because people are greedy and selfish, and that does happen. We live in a broken world, and no government is perfect. Not even our government. As much as we may love our country, it is not a perfect government. There's only one perfect government, and it hasn't come yet in its, in its finality. Jesus is going to return and set up His kingdom where justice will be perfect and righteousness will be perfect and there will be no poor people oppressed and all those sorts of things. And we won't have that kind of government until then. Though we strive to make it better and things like that and get involved in the system, do all those things, we have to keep our eyes on the fact that this world is not our home. But the paradox in the passage is this. Yes, there's corruption, but it seems to be, in verse 9 he's saying, but government is necessary, right? God has ordained that we have government. He says this is gain for a land in every way. A king committed to cultivated fields. That's good for the people and the king is committed to cultivated fields. Now that is actually a very hard verse in the Hebrew. And some people think it means something totally different than that, which is actually that the only person that gains from this is the king in the end, right? And so you have to kind of... Uh, our translation has chosen the translation that points to the fact of that there is a need, and we know the Bible does point to that, a need for government, uh, and it is better than anarchy. And then in chapter 8, he moves on to the importance of submitting to the government. But here he wants us to know, take government with a grain of salt. Because money fuels and exposes corruption in sinful people. So that's one of the problems with money. And the problem is not so much with money we're going to see as we get on more into this. The problem is really with us. The second thing he points out is, is in verses 10 through 12. And that's that money can't satisfy. He says if you love money, you will not be satisfied with money. The Bible is clear. The love of money is idolatry and idols do not satisfy. 
We think more will satisfy, but when you love money, it, you're never satisfied with it in the end. Listen to what the New Testament says about this. 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10 says, Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. He doesn't say it's the root of all evil, but it's a root of all kinds of evil. He doesn't say money is the root. He says the love of money. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Notice, money is not really the problem here. It's our desire that is the problem. Did you catch that? It's, it's the desire to be rich. It's the love of money that he points out in Ecclesiastes and that Paul points out to Timothy. The Bible never says it's wrong to make lots of money. God is, not as opposed, God is not opposed to you making good money. He is, however, vehemently opposed to you loving money, trusting in money, worshiping money, being defined by money. More will never be enough for that kind of person because idols will not satisfy. Money was never meant to bring satisfaction, peace, or purpose. It's a tool, but it's a horrible God. In verse 12, the second part of verse 12 there, he says the only advantage to this person once they have this money is he says is that you can behold your riches. He says that's really the only advantage you have is your eyes can look at it. Once you have gained it, a part of the thrill is gone. And now you simply stare at all that you've got, right? When you've got so much. But the real problem is our desires. He who loves money, he says the writer and says Apostle Paul, those who desire to be rich, this lust for money, this treasuring of it, this hoping in money is spiritually fatal. Spiritually fatal. Make no mistake, idolatry is deadly. And Paul warns in 1 Timothy, in the passage we just read, that people literally walked away from faith in Jesus over love for money. It is spiritually fatal. You say, I, I really wrestle with materialism. I really wrestle with greed. But I guess everybody does. Yeah, and some people walk away from the faith. When we battle materialism and we battle greed, we are battling for our soul. It is a serious issue is what Paul is saying. It is not a little sin. It is not one to be swept under the rug. It is one to be repented of. Money doesn't satisfy. He says, because in the end, in the end, he goes on to say it attracts more consumers. Did you notice that? He says the more the the more money there is, the more mouths there are. He says, more eaters there are, the more consumers there are, and consuming and eating and all that is a common theme throughout this passage. We don't catch it in the Hebrew, but you see the word eat a lot of times in your translation. Then later on, it's translated enjoy. When he talks about God gives the power to enjoy, or you don't have the power to enjoy. We read that. All that is the same Hebrew word. Talking about consuming, talking about enjoying, talking about eating. It's the, it's the major theme of this, of this passage. And more money attracts more consumers. It attracts more eaters, more people that want to enjoy that money. More people that want to get on board the gravy train, so to speak, right? Everybody wants to be buddies with the guy with a whatever. Beach house, boat, whatever, right? All of a sudden you've got lots of new friends. That's kind of his point. If nothing else, the tax man shows up a little more, right? All those sort of things. Everybody wants a piece. And he's saying, there's just trouble that comes with money. That's all he's saying. He's like, well, I'd like to have some more of that trouble. Well, he's just saying, just know, there's more trouble that comes with money. It really does. In verse 12, he says, paint, he paints a picture of actually satisfaction versus misery. And he says, the laborer, the guy who just goes out and works hard, makes his living, maybe he makes a lot, maybe he makes a little, but at the end of the day, his identity is not tied up in his wealth, and his, his meaning is not tied up in his wealth, and he's not seeking happiness and satisfaction in his wealth. He goes home and he sleeps well at night. 
But the guy who's all about being rich, his full stomach keeps him up at night. He's talking about a, a spiritual indigestion, if you will, a, restless, a restlessness that comes for this desire for more. All he can think about is what the Brexit's impact is on his money or, or about what he needs to buy and how he can make more and where his investments should go and what's happening here and how he can gain more and how he can save more. And he's constantly thinking about the money. And it brings just... It's exhausting. It's not satisfying. That's his point. Because it was never money and financial gain was never meant to satisfy. You ever had a rice cake? Things are horrible. They can flavor them all kinds of different flavors. And I've tasted them. But do you know what they don't do? You can eat a lot of rice cakes and still be hungry. Right? You can eat a lot of Pringles potato chips. I like those things. They're not created to fill me up. Neither was rice cakes are, cre- cakes are created, I guess, primarily to be healthy. And secondly... They try to make them taste good. But primarily they're supposed to be healthy. But they don't really fill you up, right? If you want to be full, you got to go like kill something, cook it, and eat it, right? <laughs> That's how you get satisfied. But the point is, some things just they weren't made for that, right? And in the same way, money, while it can be a good thing, while it can be a useful tool, and it's a it's a, it's an amoral, not an immoral thing, we're we can be very immoral with it, but it's never intended to bring satisfaction and happiness to life. That's not why. God allows it to be in existence today. If you love money, if you find when you have time to sit and think that your thoughts go to more and more, and if I only had, if you look to it to, to get you out of situations and to make you feel better, to, if you think it would solve most of the issues in your life, if you live for the dollar, He's saying you'll never be satisfied. Just know that. Money does not satisfy. He also says another problem with money is it's fleeting. That's verses 13 through 17. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. He says, you know, what I've I've seen happen, I've seen someone lose it all. They kept, they hoarded, they saved, but they lost it all at some point. The stock market crashed. Their business venture went under. The housing market went bust, right? To make matters worse, the guy had a family. He said he had a son. But he has nothing to leave his son. He has nothing to leave the, the nothing to leave behind. Just as he came into the world, he's going to leave the world. He's at the end of the day, he also can't take it with him. He focuses on the fact that nobody ultimately takes it with them. No matter how much we acquire in wealth, when we die, we leave it behind. And then in verse seventeen, he says this person ends up in darkness. They're alone, in other words, completely burnt out, sick, and angry. It's just a miserable picture there in verse seventeen, because money is a fickle god. One day you can have lots of it, and the next day you can have none of it. There isn't really a safe place you can put it. You can invest it, and the economic system can just go boom. You can put it under your bed, and then your house can burn down, right? There's just really no safe place to put it. Ultimately, Jesus even said, what? You know, don't store up your treasure where raw moth and, and rust destroy. Even Jesus pointed to the fact that it's fleeting. Proverbs 27.24 says, Riches do not last forever. And does a crown endure to all generations? Riches don't last forever. Proverbs 23, 4 and 5. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Throughout the Scriptures, we see the uncertainty of riches. That abundance and wealth is not a guarantee. In our country, we learned that the hard way in 2007-2008 when the housing market bubble crashed blew up. And people lost homes and st- the stock market was affected and people people's retirement income pff, started crashing. 
And we realize it can very quickly sprout wings and fly away. And he's saying, listen, you can't take it with you. you you've heard the joke, you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. He's saying, hey, sometimes before you ever hit the hearse, it's already hit the U-Haul. Sometimes it leaves town before you do. Money will sprout up wings and fly, but in the end, you're not taking it with you anyway. And notice though the key here. As he says, the grievous evil that he's seen under the sun is that riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. This guy was saving money. And he still ends up in a bad place. You know, some people show their love of money through spending money. And some people show their love of money through saving money. You say, I thought we're supposed to save money. Well, we should. That's a good thing. I'm not, you gotta spend money and you gotta save money. This guy, this guy, though, it kept to his own hurt. Just because you don't spend a lot doesn't mean you don't love money. Money is an idol that feeds other idols. And some people, the idol that it feeds might be pleasures and it might be the way I appeal, uh, look in front of other people. But for some people, the idol that it feeds is security. And so they never feel like they have enough, so they hoard and hoard and hoard and hoard and they've got accounts and accounts and accounts and stocks and stocks and stocks and stocks and they save and they save and they save. And that can be a form of the love of money as well. You know, good stewardship involves spending. You have to spend. It involves saving and it involves sending or giving. Right? The three S's there of stewardship. And greed also involves spending. And greed also involves saving. And greed rarely involves sending. Unless it's only to further the heart of the greedy. Here's my point. You can show your trust in abundance through spending or through saving. But know this, money has a mind of its own. And it is fleeting. He also says money can disappoint you. You can have money and not have the power to enjoy it. Chapter 6. He says there's an evil, verse 1, that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. A stranger enjoys them, he goes on to say. He says it's possible to be blessed with tons of abundance, to have wealth and possessions and honor, to lack nothing but to not actually enjoy it. How? Because God didn't give the power to enjoy it. He wants us to get our heads around the fact that good things come from God, including the gift of joy and enjoyment, and that just because you have what you want doesn't mean you have what you need. He says, a stranger enjoys this person's wealth instead in this situation. In other words, just like the person who lost it all, someone else gets what you had. His point is, you don't have the power to control. You don't have the power to control what you think you can control. You can't even enjoy your blessings apart from God allowing you to enjoy your blessings and giving you the power to enjoy them. In verse 3, he says, he gives us a situation. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that his days of his life are many, but his soul is not satisfied with his good things. Has no burial. I'll say the stillborn child is better off than he. And he goes into this long illustration. Even if he should live a thousand years twice over, he says, yet no, enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place. What's he saying here? What, what's his point here? He's painting the picture of a man with a hundred children. You say, well, that doesn't sound happy. <laughs> so that guy sounds busy, right? But in the, he's given an analogy because in their day, the sign of blessing, the sign of abundance, the sign of happiness was equated with how many children you got, how much money you got, and how long a life do you live. That, that was what they looked at. So if you lived a long time and you had lots of money and you had lots of children, boy, God must really love you. You are really blessed. You've got the good life. And he's saying, you know, you can have all of that stuff. 
And in our culture, maybe it's viewed different. Although, biblically speaking, the Bible does say children are a blessing from the Lord and blessed is he whose quiver is full. So that we know that that is a, a blessing from God. But in our culture, many times there's other things people look at and say, well, if I just had this or just had that. His point is, no matter how you define it, if you had all these things and you can't enjoy them, wow, what's the point? And he uses the illustration of a stillborn child. His point there is obviously that we grieve that. He's not, he's not making light of this situation. He's pointing out that there's an obvious situation that we would obviously grieve that, which obviously, by the way, points to life in the womb. But he says, just as we would mourn that as a tragic death, however, he wants us to see that the man that has everything, who lives a long life, 2,000 years either, even, but doesn't get to enjoy it and never finds true satisfaction, but goes through his life always seeking. In other words, this person never finds peace in God. This person never finds that relationship with God. He's saying, now that's something to mourn. Also, he said, boy, this guy, he was given a long life. He didn't have a, 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 a just a breath of a life. He had this long life of 2,000 years, which in the landscape of eternity, I know is still a vapor, but he said he had this 2,000 years. Has all this stuff, but at the end of the day, you should mourn him if he never finds peace and never finds satisfaction, even though he had all these things that he thought he needed. Imagine this morning, if we walked out in the parking lot, and we had this Oprah moment, right? Somebody's out there and they're like, car for you, a car for you, a car for you, right? Whatever your dream car would be, right? You've got what Rolls Royce, Lamborghini, Porsche, whatever your dream car is. And you're like, wow, it's got your name on it. You walk over there and there's your name written across you know, a little billboard on the front. And you're like, wow, this is so awesome. And you went to get in and, the, and you're, you open the door and you sit down and the keys are not there. And they're like, you can't have the key. You, the, the cars, you're like, I, I'm supposed to enjoy this, right? How you, you've got the, your dream car, but at the end of the day, you know, Oprah has showed up and she has given you the dream car, but at the end of the day, she's not going to give you the key to enjoy the car. You'd say, well, that's not going to get near as much enjoyment staring at that thing in the church parking lot as I would get if I could drive it home. And his point here is, just because you have something doesn't mean you can enjoy something. The key to enjoyment you do not hold. He's letting us know that God is the giver of joy. And the key to enjoyment comes from Him. Now there is something we have to choose to live contently. We have to choose to trust Him. We're going to get to all that. But He wants us to see that it's beyond us. Joy is found outside of you and outside of the stuff. Verses 7, 8, and 9. The toil of man... Is for his mouth, and his appetite is not satisfied. He once again he points to the lack of satisfaction. He wants us to realize that we that we are learn what we need to learn is that this is an appetite problem. Because of sin, people crave the wrong things, money and success and power. And you can work and work and work to feed your appetite and never be full. Because the problem comes from within. It's a heart issue. Don't go thinking since joy is not found in money, that hey, maybe the answer is in wisdom. For what advantage, he says, has the wise over the fool? Neither may get rich, and both have to solve their appetite problem. See, the key is pointing, he is pointing to is dealing with the appetite, no longer being ruled by the desire for more. To find peace, to find rest in something that does satisfy, and to find contentment in life, but not in having to always have more of something to get that. And that's what we see in the, in the places in this passage that we haven't covered yet. He wants us to look to and behold the goodness of God. So we've seen the problems of money. Now let's look at the goodness of God. Verses 18 through 20. 
of chapter 5. Go back. What I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toils which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his life. We see various versions of this type of phrase a few times in Ecclesiastes. We've seen it already. We see it here. We'll see it again in like chapter 9. And what he is constantly driving throughout Ecclesiastes is while there is toil and vanity and all these things under the sun, there is a way to have enjoyment. There is a way to have, quote-unquote, the good life. But it is, it is found not under the sun. It is found beyond the sun. It is found by the one who made the sun. And he's pointing here in this passage to the need to know and trust God. You know, we can chase a mirage of abundance and money or we can bask in the reality that is God. We need an appetite for something greater than the things of the world. We need to look beyond the sun for all that is un- for uh, beyond the sun for all that is under the sun, as he says throughout Ecclesiastes, is broken. He repeats similar versions of this passage, and here though he, he makes a special emphasis on accepting a, accepting your lot in life. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But notice, God is Creator, and He has designed the world to work in a certain way. Ultimately, He's designed us to need more than money and to need Him more than, to need things, something more than money, ultimately to need Him more than we need money. He says it's possible to eat and drink and find enjoyment. Earlier, we, we just read in chapter 6, He talks about you can eat and drink and, and, and have all the stuff and, and not find enjoyment. But here He says it is possible to eat and drink and find enjoyment in your toil and all that you have. It's actually good and fitting to do so, He says, but it starts with God. Understanding that God has given, right? In this passage, we behold the abundant goodness of God, that He's abundant in generosity. He says He gives our days of life. He gives our wealth. He gives possessions and the power to enjoy them. God is a giver. And so the key here is recognizing that the one beyond the sun, the one that created the sun, the one that's creator of all things, that ultimately He gives the power to enjoy. He is a generous God. So we bask in His goodness by first beholding His abundant generosity and also His power. It's God who gives the power to enjoy. We don't have that within ourselves. God has to give that power because it's Him that has the power to give the power for you to enjoy life. And a big part of this is faith. So we need to know God and trust God. By faith, we need to accept the lot of life. He says, we need to, he says, for this is his lot in verse 18. Everyone to whom God has given wealth, verse 19, and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. Accepting your lot requires living by faith. If we don't learn to operate in life as it is, and as it is designed to be, and as it it happens to be in a fallen world, we'll be miserable. Life is short and is meant to be enjoyed as a gift from God. The good life of peace and joy is found in accepting that you're not God. That God is God and living by faith in Him as your provider. By accepting our lot, He's not, he's not, try, he's not saying don't try to excel at your job. He's not, he's not saying strive for mediocrity. That's not the point. His point is that it's the lot that is life. Don't try to make more out of life than what life is. Don't try to make more out of money than what money is. Understand the world works a certain way and that you're made to need God and that you're made to trust Him and that you're made to walk by faith and to find your joy in Him and understand that whatever you get, whether it's a little or whether it's a lot, it comes from His hand and live by faith in Him. Accept your lot, whatever it is. Deal with reality. Don't fight reality. Derek Kidner wrote a 
good commentary on Ecclesiastes. This is just a great quote I read this past week from it. Let me read it to you. At first sight, this may look like the mere praise of simplicity and moderation. But in fact, the key word is God. And the secret of life held out to us is openness to Him, openness to God. A readiness to take what comes to us is heaven sent, whether it is toil or wealth or both. He goes on to say in Ecclesiastes, verse 20, For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There's a way in which to live life that life flies by, but not simply due to its brevity, but being caught up joyously in God. Life can feel both long and short, even for those far from God. It can feel long as one searches endlessly for meaning and peace and feel short once he gets to the end and realizes he's wasted his life. Or we can get caught up in a hurricane of contentment and joy in God and live life so fully that we wonder where the time went. That we look back and we know we went through trials and we went through difficulties and we went through all these things, but we're so satisfied in God that when it's all said and done, yes, life has kind of flown by, but we have just been caught up in the contentment and joy of the Lord. That's what He wants for us. And then in chapter 6, this kind of section ends with kind of some confusing verses. I want to reread them to you and then explain them. It wraps up nicely. It says, Whatever has come to be has already been named. Chapter 6, verse 10. And it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun. This goes well with this idea of accepting our lot in life, recognizing who we are and who God is. Chapter 6 is a rebuttal to the idea that we can make out of life whatever we like. Verse 10 there in the Hebrew makes little more sense than we can make out of it when we just read it at a glance in English. Here we have a play on Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3, this the, the, the creation account and the fall and all that. The word man there, which is whatever has come to be has already been named and is known what man is. is the same word for Adam. And he's referring back to when Adam named everything. Right? You remember that? When God allowed Adam to name all the animals and gave Adam domain. So man has domain, right? And we're to represent uh, God on this earth in the sense of we are to steward His creation. He's talking about that, that stewardship been ha- handed off there to Adam. Because naming has to do with authority. And so, Adam was in authority in a sense, right? And so he's naming the animals. God gave him that authority. For instance, when Christy and I, we had kids, we got to name the kids, right? And so, that's kind of, you're like, well, I get to name, it's it's like, it's fun, right? We spend hours thinking of names and researching names and thinking about names and you pray over names and all this sort of stuff because it's like you realize this is with them forever, right? What do you think about when you think of that name? What is it you're thinking about that? And there's this, there's a sense of responsibility that comes with this authority to be able to name someone. And Adam was given that responsibility. But Adam learned something through all this. He says, it is known what man is. Who named Adam? (laughs) Not Adam. God named Adam. There was a chain of authority, so to speak. There is one above him. It is known what man is. Man, 
Also, here's the word for Adam. And the word points to the fact that man, that Adam, came from the dust. In the Hebrew word, the, the word for man, the word for Adam, points back to the fact and is related to the word for dust because he's pointing. it points to that's who we are. So it's known what man is. What he's saying? He's saying we're dust. <laughs> dust that has been made into the image of God. His point is, he says, when we can't dispute with one stronger than he, who is the one that Adam disputed with that was stronger than him? God. He said, I would like to kind of try to be like God. I would like to be God myself. And so he goes and he disobeys God. The one in authority. And we can buck against him all we like, but in the end, just as Adam did, we can't change who we are. Adam found that he was weak and that he was subordinate. And Adam rebelled and he reaped consequences and we reaped consequences for his sin. When dust tries to be God, it doesn't end well for the dust. All we do in our disputes and arguments with God is produce more words and vanity is what he says. We can't change the facts. God has made us. We have not made ourselves. And God has given us our role to bear His image. And the fall happened and God has told us what the consequences are. And at the end of the day, He says in verse 12, you don't know everything because you're not God. That's kind of the summation of those three verses. We're not perfectly wise. Even the wise can't perfectly understand everything. We need the one who's in authority. We don't know what's going to come after us, but God does. Without mentioning God, He's pointing us to God. Because He's showing us the hollowness of, of just who we are without Him. And this section is filled with warnings of what happens when we try to make out of life what we want and we begin namely to pursue happiness through money and abundance thinking that will equal a happier life. But in this, these passages, verses 10-12 through 12, and what we read in chapter 5, point to a better way. That you can know the God, the God who created man from dust, wants to give you enjoyment in life. The God of abundance. The God who gives life. The God who gives its blessings. The God who gives the power to enjoy. The God who is in authority over all things, created all things, and designed life to work in a certain way from the moment He formed us from the dust. And when we know this God, this God of abundance who abundantly gives to us, we can know what Jesus called abundant life. We can know God. We can enjoy and steward God's gifts. We can experience the joy of life as it's meant to be instead of chasing the empty promises of idols, namely money and more. Materialism. So, Christian, we need to beware the allure this morning of abundance and of money and of always having more. There is nothing wrong, as I said, making money. But beware lest money have you. You find yourself wondering why you can never have enough of it. Maybe you've fallen prey to the love of it. It's very subtle. Very subtle. But it doesn't last. Lasting joy is not found there. In John 10.10, Jesus said, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus came to give abundance, but not financial abundance. He didn't come to make us rich. He came to bring an abundant life. You know, the, the first Adam that he points to at the end of this passage of chapter 6, the one made from dust, we know refused, as we said, to submit to God and chose to dispute His place. He tried to, in a sense, be God. And we've all done the same thing is what Romans 1 tells us. But Romans 5 tells us that Jesus is the second Adam. 
In Christ, God became one of us, a person. The, the Creator took on flesh in the Incarnation. And He perfectly lived in submission to the Father. He didn't chase the empty mirage of money and the love of money. He accepted His lot from His Father and laid down His life so you and I can be freed from our addiction to more. Our sins of greed and coveting and all the others connected to it. So that we can have an abundant life whether or not we have an abundant income. That's why Jesus has come. So, this morning, first of all, do you know Christ? Are you a slave to your passions, to your desires, to your appetite for more? Materialism, the love of money. Do you know Christ who has died to set you free from that? Number one. Number two, if you're a Christian this morning, are we experiencing the abundant life Jesus offered? Are we busy, too busy chasing the abundance of riches to bask in the abundant life offered to us by Jesus when we trust Him and live contently with the lot in life that He gives us? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful this morning that You 